0: Please be seated. Well, this final chapter of Jeremiah, as you can see, is a historical recap, mainly of the last event, the final event of of Judah, so to speak, and this destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But it's really a recap of the whole book. It's a recap of everything that Jeremiah had prophesied about uh, and that everything came true here in this account. The chapter was probably not written by Jeremiah. It was most likely added by a scribal editor sometime later. Uh, it was probably the same editor who wrote those last words in chapter 51 that we read last week in verse 64, thus far the words of Jeremiah as a as a note to say that what comes after this is not the words of Jeremiah. We can't be certain, but it seems that way. Uh, not only is Jeremiah not the author most likely, he's not even mentioned in this chapter, yet The chapter has a lot to say about Jeremiah. In particular, it gives the historical accounts that vindicate him as the true prophet of God in that all of his prophecies came to pass. What he had foretold, what he had warned against, all of it came to pass in this final act of judgment by Babylon in destroying Jerusalem, the temple, the land, and carrying off her people into exile. Without saying it explicitly, this chapter makes a clear statement through historical fact that Jeremiah was the prophet of God. If you look back in Deuteronomy when the people were questioning how how will we know a true prophet from a false prophet, the Lord gave them instruction how they would know. God said to them, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? He answers, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You do not need to be afraid of him, Deuteronomy 18:21. And so this chapter, chapter 52, is the statement that Jeremiah is clearly a prophet of the Lord because everything he said came to pass, it came true. The account that we have here can be found in other passages of Scripture. In fact, many believe that the editor that put this chapter together relied heavily on the records that we find in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and 2 Kings 36. We won't take time to look there, but you can read those later and see how many of the similarities Exist uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's not on what we base our uh, translations of Scripture, but obviously something that we look at. The order of some of the books is, di- or some of the chapters in Jeremiah is different. This particular chapter doesn't come at the end, but after chapter forty-five. Some people think that's a, a strong indication that this was Baruch's writing because chapter forty-five is the, the place where we see that message from the Lord to Baruch, and then this comes right after that. Some people think that's an indication, but whatever. Whoever whoever wrote this, uh, whoever the author is, the the fact is there's very little in terms of additional information that we find in this chapter. Most of this we've already seen, particularly in chapter 39. And we could find the rest of it, most of it, in 2 Kings 24-25, 2 Chronicles 36. Why is it recorded? It's recorded here for a number of reasons. One is to vindicate Jeremiah as a true prophet, but another because this event was so pivotal in the history and the life of Israel, Judah, the people of God, but really in redemptive history. From the start in Abraham, through the the promised son that came in Isaac, a nation was created to be a people unto God. Through their time in Egypt, through slavery, through deliverance, through the Exodus, through their wilderness sojourning and the sufferings there, entering a new land, taking possession of it, to an established kingdom, with a temple that provided for the worship of Yahweh, this people had an incredible history full of miracles and providence, full of covenant love and faithfulness. And now in this one event, it seems as if this is the culmination of the end of it all. It's all over. Everything that was built is gone. The land, it's been ransacked by the Babylonians. The king... He's been removed. His sons have been cut off from him before his very eyes. He watched them executed. His eyes gouged out. He's taken off to prison in Babylon. The temple burned down and then desecrated with all of the elements being carried away. The bronze being used even, and it was cut up for scrap. And the people themselves removed, carried off as exiles to a strange faraway land. This one event seems like the nail in the coffin for there ever to be a kingdom in Israel again. This is why this event described here is so significant in the story of redemption, and it's worth recapping here as our last look at the book of Jeremiah. So, looking at beginning in verse 1, we see in the first 16 verses, what is recounted as just the destruction of the Babylonian army against Jerusalem. Not new for us. We've seen accounts of this already. Uh, We're taken back in time to when Zedekiah first came to the throne. He was a young man, 21 years old, we're told. He reigned on the throne uh, for 11 years. We know that before Zedekiah came to the throne, that the trajectory of Judah was already headed downhill. But Zedekiah's reign uniquely marks the beginning of the end. And we've seen that through the history that we've read in here. We're told of his mother, Hamital, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. This is not our Jeremiah, a different different person named Jeremiah. We don't know anything else about him. And then in verse 2 is this recap of his reign that sounds so familiar if you've read through any of the Old Testament historical books. Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the same pattern of Jehoiakim and so many of the others before him. Josiah was the last kind of noble king Uh, In Judah that that preceded them. After him, it was all downhill with both of his sons, his grandson, and now this uncle Zedekiah in the last 11 years who led the people away from Yahweh. And then verse 3 gives us the reason for God's judgment upon Jerusalem. We know it well by now. It is because of his anger in a reaction to their rebellion that he cast them from his presence, he says. This notion of casting them from his presence isn't merely just the idea of exile. It's, it's far more than that. It's more than their land and the temple being destroyed. It is really a, a demonstration that they are being cut off from communion with him. And we know it doesn't mean that he breaks his covenant. We know that's never true. God never breaks his covenant. It stays. That's why there's this hope of this thread that runs throughout all of Scripture, redemptive history. It's the thread that we see running right through the end of Jeremiah, and we'll see how it all connects by the end of today. But from a human perspective, at this point in history, this act feels like the relationship is severed. There's a point to it. There's always a point to discipline. The point is, the objective is, Repentance, because there are consequences to sin, there is discipline, uh, an interruption of the relationship. So this act would have cut them off from their normal means of worship. The temple is destroyed. They wouldn't have the ordinary means to them of being able to approach God. And we find similarity to this in the New Testament where church discipline is described, wherein one who is not repentant, if they follow in that pattern of refusing to repent, is cut off from fellowship. They're cut off from the Lord's Supper. They're cut off so that they might repent. That is always the objective of discipline. So here the people are described as being cast out from the presence of God for a time because of their continual sin, that they might turn in repentance. And then at the end of verse 3, we see that the destruction comes against the city because of Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. That was the tipping point for Nebuchadnezzar to return and take down this king that he had put into place. And so in verse 4, the Babylonian army comes. They begin to destroy the city. They, they start by laying these siege works against the city walls. This would have involved piling up rocks and dirt to get up like a ramp. To up to the, to the top of the wall to come over the top and attack it. So if you can imagine, we've watched this building go up next to us uh, over the last few months. Lots of dirt. I see a lot more of it than you do. I can't imagine why so much dirt needs to be moved around all the time, continually over and over again. But, you know, months it took to build this. Can you imagine with no modern equipment what it took to build a siege ramp up to the top of the walls of Jerusalem. It was no quick process. All the while, the people inside the city are going to be attacking those who are building a ramp. They're going to be throwing anything they can over the top or shooting arrows down or whatever they can do to slow down or stop the assault. So this event lasted anywhere from 18 to 36 months, depending on how we date things, but a long time, as long as two and a half years this assault went on. And so over this time, the city is completely cut off from outside resources. And as you might imagine, a famine arises in the city, and that's what we're told. The people are dying of starvation. The details of that famine are not elaborated a lot here in, Jerusalem, or in uh, Jeremiah, but we see it in other books of the Bible, especially in Lamentations, which Jeremiah also wrote. He wrote during this time of the famine. He was there. And we see descriptions like Lamentation four four because of the thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Chapter 5, verse 4, we must buy the water we drink. Our wood can only be had at a price. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, we get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. And possibly the most horrific of all, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I don't know that we even have a category to process the the horror that was involved in this famine in Jerusalem. It was beyond tragic. It was beyond our imagination. This was what was happening during this siege. Now, we remember much of this story from chapter 39, particularly how Zedekiah got away or tried to get away, ran to the Arabah. Uh, He was eventually captured He's carried up to Riblah to stand before Nebuchadnezzar who slaughters his sons right in front of him. He wants him to see it. And that's the last image that he has in his mind, in his eyes, in his mind. Before his eyes are cut off, he would lose his sight. And the significance of that event isn't just that that fulfills the promise or the prophecy of Jeremiah, but also it was to cut off the posterity of Zedekiah. That's why kings did this. It was to show them, you will not have a son on the throne. And so he cut off his sons before his very eyes. And then in verse 12, we fast forward from the beginning of the siege to the end of the siege. Uh, we have the date there, August 17th, 586 BC. If you have a study Bible, that's the conversion of the date that we're given in the text there. And we know this date because of uh, we can go back and, and convert all the, how they did their calendars and so forth. But we also know this because this came, became an official day of fasting for the Jews. That's how significant this event was. Zechariah, in his prophecy, in chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 8, verse 19, he mentions this particular fast. It was also on this date that Nebuchadnezzar, who we remember again from chapter 39, came into the city and began to burn it. This particular detail is fascinating, and you can search this later, but if you search on the, the, uh, the, the discovery, the archaeological discovery, we can find that this has all been verified, and there's neat pictures and so forth of this event. They can go back and dig through the rubble and find the remnants of this great fire in Jerusalem. And what do they find in the ashes of this fire but Babylonian elements of warfare, including things like uh, arrowheads and that kind of stuff that they can trace to Babylon. So it's, you know, it's one of those events that it's fascinating in the sense that we can go back and actually still see evidence of it in pictures from archaeological digs. The first, uh, uh, you know, attack against the city is a siege work. The second attack is to come in and burn the this, this city with fire. We, we have trouble imagining this because it's a stone. I mean, when we look at the old, it's all dirt, stones. How do you burn this? But the structure of many of the buildings, like we see in the, in the description of, of, of the temple, Solomon brought in these huge cedars from Lebanon. And in the historical accounts, not in this, this passage in Jeremiah, but in the historical accounts, we see that those burned. So the very structures that held things together were burned, and then verse 14 tells us that what was left, they pushed over. So the whole city lie in ruins. And then another large group is carried off into exile. We saw this already in chapter 39, why he left some of the poor behind. We won't go into those details today. But this was all strategic in the conquering of the world that Babylon was carrying out. Even though the temple was destroyed in the fire, it was further desecrated in having many of its valuable elements carted off to Babylon. Beginning in verse 17, we read of these these massive bronze pillars, some 35 feet tall with all the ornate working the pomegranates that that they had been forged in. Uh, And this large basin, the, the sea as it's called, was 15 feet across. Eight feet high, I can't imagine. I mean, verse 20 tells us all of this was beyond measure. It was so heavy, all of this metal. When they cut it up to carry, they had to cut it up to carry it back to Babylon, uh, that it was beyond measure. It was so great in an amount. The cups, the bowls, all the utensils, all of that is listed so that we see the temple was utterly ransacked. Sometimes we read through Scripture and we're like, why are we given all this detail? I mean, the list is kind of long. Getting into all the nitty-gritty, it's to say that not that someone came in and robbed the kitchen, but that someone came in and took every fork, every spoon, every knife, every plate, every and so on and so forth. So we know nothing was left. That's the picture that's being painted. And ironically, it was from these very silver and gold cups that are described here that we read about last week, from which Belshazzar drank on the night that he died in Daniel five. So the temple is sacked, it's destroyed, it's desecrated, it's pillaged. And this, which I don't think we can fully comprehend, is probably the greatest insult against the people of Judah. Even more than being defeated militarily, even more than their being carried away as exiles, that their temple was so destroyed, made a mockery of their prideful claims that we are the chosen people of God. It was the evidence that where is your God who has allowed this to happen? Now, the act didn't change God's covenant. But to them and to the nations around them, the Gohim, the Gentiles, those, all, all, the, the way they looked at people as, as anyone who was a Gohim was, was unclean and, and, and an outsider and an outcast, to them it looked as if their God had disappeared. They weren't so special after all. And it's a good reminder to us that we never build in our own faith any sense of pride, particularly when we come to issues like predestination and election. May we never turn something that we know to be true from Scripture, whether it's our election or the fact that the Jews were the chosen people of God, which we know from Scripture, may we never turn that into a source of pride. I've said it before, I'll say it again, a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. It's not that we don't have pride or struggle with pride. Every one of us does. But to be prideful is antithetical to being a Christian. To be saved by grace alone through faith alone requires, even demands, humility. We have nothing on our own on which to stand. We contribute nothing. It was God's gracious act alone. And what do we have to take pride? Yet in our theological musings and discoursings, or even in our private thoughts, pride can so easily creep into our hearts. And what does it do? It deceives us. It's what Galatians 6.3 says, For anyone, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So with this humiliation now of the temple's destruction... Now the exile of the people is beginning to be described in verse 24. We're not going to go through all the details. There's a difference between the numbers here and those in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and uh, 2 Chronicles 36, likely due either to the fact of how they numbered uh, different, meaning that only the men were numbered here, which was sometimes the case, or that there were multiple deportations. Uh, The point is, as a lot of people were carried off. Uh, most estimate between 15 to 18,000 people in total carried off in this final exile. And then verse 31 is this strange ending to this book. Do you find it strange when we read it, this little account of Jehoiachin being taken out of prison some 36, 37 years later? We fast forward 37 years later. It's uh, 561 BC. We're in Babylon now. And this Joachin, who we really didn't know a whole lot, he was only on the throne for three months. You know, he came to the throne at 18. Nebuchadnezzar came the first time uh, to, to, to Jerusalem in the first exile, carried him off with his mom. You remember that story. He was also known as Jeconiah or Coniah. They, you know, they all had multiple names. Um, now, in this account, Avel Meredek pulls him out of prison doesn't just free him, but gives him all kinds of favor. gives him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Remember, Babylon was the world power. They had come to dominate the entire world, known world at this time. And so there were lots of kings in prison. They probably had their own quarters. And now he is lifted in a seat above all the other kings who had been conquered. He comes out to dine. He now eats with the king of Babylon. It says his prison garments are removed, implying that he's dressed with something better, probably royal royal clothing. He's given money to spend an allowance. And it says for the rest of his life, Jehoiachin was shown favor. Why is this here? And what does it mean? Well, for us, it may not mean a whole lot. But for the people of Judah, Jehoiachin was the rightful heir to the throne. He was the grandson of Josiah. Zedekiah was not the rightful heir. He was a puppet king who had been placed on the throne. He was the uncle. He was still royalty in the sense of family, but he wasn't the rightful heir. He wasn't uh, the one through whom the the throne should have continued. He was a puppet king of an occupying tyrant. Jehoiachin represented the line of David. He was the, the, the only hope of a future kingdom. And so to the people of Judah who were in exile in Babylon, those who witnessed this act, who saw the favor of Jehoiachin raised up and now continually shown favor. He's he's living living a great life now in Babylon. This would have been seen as a glimmer of hope. It's not huge, but to this fledgling remnant, it was an indication that there was still a way forward. Almost all of Jeremiah's ministry, uh, most of it, not all of it, almost all of it, was a message of judgment. It was a message of warning. It was a call to repentance. But remember, there was also... He was given the charge to build up as well, and we've seen that. That was the charge in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And this is how chapter 52 and the whole book ends. The final words of the book of Jeremiah even though they are the words of an editor most likely and not the words of Jeremiah himself, are the words of building and planting. Because they point back to the promise foretold by Jeremiah, given by the Lord, that behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That promise of the new covenant came through the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God who was born as a man. And if we flipped over, you don't have to. You can trust me on this. You can look later. But if we go look at his genealogy and we read through that list of names, what do we find? In Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to jump right in the middle of it, we find the name Josiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, who was also Jehoiachin the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Jesus was a descendant of Jehoiachin, the king who lived longer in exile than he did in his own land. And where Jeremiah ends with this, Matthew picks up and shows us the genealogical demonstration of the covenant faithfulness of God, that just as promised, a son of David would come, that even though at this event looked like the end of a Jewish kingdom, seemed like there was no way forward. All had been cut off. There was still a way forward. And that's why it ends on this note. As a side note, after Easter, we're going to pick up in Matthew. That's where we're going to go next. So keep all this in mind. This is where we're going to study in our next series is the book of Matthew. That Jesus came in the line of David, a descendant of Jehoiachin. We're going to start there. To establish a kingdom not of this world and a throne that would never end. All the judgment that we read about in Jeremiah points us to the absolute holiness of our God. He is just and righteous in his judgment. Yet even while we were his enemies, while we deserve nothing but the same judgment we see described there, God sent his son to die in our place. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The new covenant ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that we have been reconciled to God and we call others to be reconciled to God in the same manner. By faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. As long as we reject the gospel, we remain at odds with the Holy One of Israel. This is because our sins have piled up, just like Judah's Just like Babylon, just like every other nation that Jeremiah spoke against, our sins have piled up. Even our attempts, we're told in Isaiah, to do what is right and good are no more than filthy rags. So we come with empty hands, nothing to offer, adding nothing to the finished work of Christ, but rather falling on His mercy and putting our faith in Him, we can be reconciled to God. For all who have put their faith in Christ, the new covenant is our reality. This is where we are. This is what is our experience now and what our future holds. And this is where I want to end our study in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 and 34. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Father, that you are the great covenant keeping God who you, you incredible things, Lord, just incredible things from 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 Abraham, the 99 getting a son Isaac and then it's seemingly all undone in Israel, and yet you bring them out. Then there's the wilderness, and, and, and you build this great kingdom, and then we see it all come crashing down because of sin, and it looks like it's all over, and yet there it is at the very end, Jehoiachin. There's, there's a way forward. We run to see Christ, the Son of David, the true Son of David who came, the Son of God, born as a man, to take upon Himself our sin. For this we give you thanks, that because of Jesus you have forgiven our iniquity and you remember our sin no more. What release, what freedom, we give you thanks for this, Lord. Would you continually cement this truth into our hearts and minds that our sins have been dealt with in Christ? That when we hear accusation, we would know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter where that accusation comes from. May we cling and hold fast to Christ Jesus, our only hope. In his great name we pray. Amen.